Stir up thy power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let thy bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory, world without end. Amen. All right. Uh, sorely hindered by our sins is a great intro. Get two little handouts there. Uh, great intro for today's uh, chat. And just to kind of summarize, uh, remember we're talking about crime fiction and how it illuminates and, and in some ways counterpoints uh, the gospel. And that it does so because crime stories talk about and work in the same landscape that the gospel does, which is the analysis each brings to our condition is the same. The conclusions aren't the same, but the analysis really is the, the same. And the analysis essentially says we're in a fallen world. We are sinful actors in that world uh, and that we cannot be redeemed out of that world except by some externality. Now here at this point, probably uh, orthodox theology and most crime novels that you read part company because the externality in most crime fiction is a person. Uh, for example, the detective, whether professional or amateur, uh, that's the <clears throat> that is the external force that has the the redeeming or the right ordering function. But that doesn't invalidate the way the stories look at at, at the human condition. All right, remember when we talked about the beginning, we're just going to talk about three little subgenres. There's all kinds of genres, but we're going to we're going to talk about <clears throat> what's called noir fiction, which is what we did last week. We're going to talk about detective fiction, and we're going to talk about what I call vicarage fiction. Um, yeah, when we were last together, we went through noir fiction. And you remember the point there was what? <clears throat> that in those stories, there's essentially no happy ending. There is no resolution. There is no path out of this landscape. And the whole point of the story is enjoying, if that's the right word, watching these people uh, uh, sort of careen along the road to hell. And there really is no particular way out uh, for, for them. Um, today we're going to talk about the detective story. And that's probably, if anybody in here actually reads crime fiction, that's what most people actually, uh, mo most people actually read. And, um, uh, you know, last time, you remember, we spent a lot of time on The Postman Always Rings Twice. And we left Frank and Cora kind of stuck in Romans 7. That is, who will deliver me from this body of death? For Frank and Cora, the answer is, ain't nobody home. Nobody is going to deliver me from that body of, 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 of death. Now, we're going to move to another little trope. Because in the detective story, at least to some degree, there is an agency that redeems there is an agency that imposes right order there is uh, an answer to that 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 question that's why there's such a big difference even if you're not thinking about this from a gospel point of view between a noir story and a and a uh, uh, a detective story and the detective stories can be all kinds of things they can be professionals they can be you know amateurs uh, they can be some kind of combination of both they can be British American Cambodian I mean it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't really matter but the 
the, 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 the setting can be sort of pre-lapsarian, you know, Eden hadn't fall, that is like, you know, the, the murder at the country house, the murder at the university, the murder in the, in the, in the monastery, or it can be sort of like a Philip Marlowe, you know, uh, post-fall, post-Edenic uh, kind of mean streets of L.A. kind of, kind of story. But the, that doesn't matter. What, what matters and what differentiates this kind of story from the kind of story we talked about last time, both in terms of narrative and in terms of, of, of theology, is the pivot person, the pivot character, is doing something to try to change the sinful order that he's working in. Trying to do something that is is going to is going to address the chaos that he's that he's that he's interested in. So I've got a quote again, a shorter quote from Otto Pinsler, which we used last time when we were talking about noir fiction, um, and that you know he he talks about completely outside of Christian context uh, how this you know how this difference works, and uh, you know Ray, Ray, Raymond Chandler who wrote The Big Sleep and a lot of other uh, Philip Marlowe novels. He wrote a lot about, about detective fiction. He said, look, essentially, the private detective in my stories is, is like a knight. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like a knight, he would go out and do things. And even though, like a knight, he was working in a violent and, and, and venal world, he himself was not, was not so. He's, a, he's essentially a, a hero. So that's the key difference between these two kind of stories just as a secular matter now for purposes of the gospel what difference does that does that make i guess i guess a couple of things first just keying off what marlowe is talking about the notion of a knight is itself a christian concept remember the whole concept arose in the early middle ages a a knight was among other things someone who was obligated by religious oath to restore order, uh, that is to say, a, a divine order in a material and fallen world. And then secondly, I think, and more and, and uh, more immediate pertinence to us, is the fact that if the detective in these stories is right, is, is a knight, that is to say, if, Mar- if, uh, if, if, if Chandler's sort of conception of this is, is correct, then he's a knight that is working in a landscape like we all do, that is post-Christendom, right? Post-Christendom. And I think that's a better term than post-Christian because it, that's the world in which we live. I and mean, what do we mean by a post-Christendom world? That means a world in which uh, uh, signs and symbols and rituals that characterized institutional Christianity for a very long time uh, things, you know, hymns, uh, altars, liturgical action like kneeling, crossing oneself, sacramental things like wine and water, uh, scriptural citation from memory, all these things that were institutionalized in Christendom, that is sort of the political manifestation of, 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 of Christianity in the West for a long time, all those things still exist. But for the larger world, they don't really have any meaning anymore. They're around. Streets still have saints' names. But there's no connection between the traffic on the street and the name that the street bears anymore. So that's, the, 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 in other words, in the detective novel, God is silent all the time. 
almost without exception, except for some, you know, quote, you know, Christian detective fiction, which is uniformly awful. Uh, and it's uniformly awful because it fails to address this problem. It goes around pretending that, uh, that we really aren't uh, in a fallen world, or if we are, it's, it's really kind of an ethically challenged world. It's not, it's not really uh, a, a, a world that at its heart is, is, is sinful. Um, so in detective stories, even though titles and epigrams have all kinds of Christendom bases. The detective is working in a world where God is absolutely silent. Okay, and you see this a lot. I mean, the, the, the and 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 and, and I, was, I was this morning. I was flipping through a, a a novel by a guy named Ian Rankin, and Rankin is a is a wonderful uh, Scottish, you know, crime novelist, and his titles. And sort of the structures have all kinds of Christendom talk in them. I, mean, yeah, I, was, I was looking at a, at a book called Resurrection Men, where one of the subplots involves something that happened in the 19th century, um, uh, in a in a with a with a, a group of, of kind of Puritan sectarians. So you have all this discussion, but it is completely unmoored, right? Completely unlinked from the from the gospel. So what's interesting about that is that's the very thing in which we're working. So. Uh, so when you read like Chandler, that quote I have from The Big Sleep, which is right towards right towards the end, right? And Marlowe has fixed most of the problems. He's sort of done whatever he can be done. He's only a few paragraphs from the end of the story. And he's comparing final resting places of a couple of characters. And as he says, and this is where the title of the novel comes from, The Big Sleep, meaning death. Okay? And... From Marlowe's point of view, it really doesn't matter. God is silent, therefore it really doesn't matter. The things that his client and her adversaries were fighting about and that he was retained to set straight, at the end of the day, don't particularly um, matter. Uh, we also see this a bunch in P.D. James, and I apologize for the quality of that photocopy. Um, it's, an old, it's an old paperback. But uh, if you'll if you'll turn to the last page, and we won't read it, take time to read it now. But if you've read any P.D. James, through whose work actually there is a lot of Christian imagery, James has a long-standing character named Adam Daglish, who is a, a is a deputy chief inspector for Scotland Yard, and is also a, a poet, and is the son of an Anglican clergyman. And uh, in uh, Devices and Desires, of course, the title of which, of course, is, is, is taken from uh, the Anglican liturgy, um, uh, Daglish has gone on vacation, but he's also, uh, where he's gone on vacation in England is also where his elderly uh, uh, aunt lived. She's died. He's now charged with taking care of her estate, and she wanted her ashes spread in the churchyard of this cathedral. And this passage is uh, about, about that. And what is uh, striking about this is that also it's rendered, it's, although it's rendered through Daglish's eyes the way a poet would see it, and although it takes place in the churchyard, it's, it's, it's completely unlinked from 
from the actual liturgy. And in fact, he said he knew the customary words for such an occasion. He'd heard them often enough on his father's uh, lips, but he doesn't say them. And then he goes inside this very old church and looks around and, and considers its beauty. Uh, but he, at, at the, the, the end there, says he wondered whether he would return or if he would, when he would return or if he would return at all. So the landscape is absolutely there. The, the vocabulary is absolutely there. The architecture is there. The, the, the windows are there. And the words are there because, after all, this is the clergyman's son. Um, but he has, there's, there's no gospel connection to them. All right, so that's, that's, the, that's the world in which all these novels are functioning. On the other hand, we know that God speaks. And we know that Jesus is himself the word of God. And I, and I, and I put a passage from Exodus and, and one from John there, but there's lots of places where we, where we see this. God speaks all the time. He spoke to Moses from the bush, but he, 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 he speaks to all sorts of, uh, of people in all sorts of ways throughout Scripture. And then, of course, Jesus himself is the word. Jesus himself is language. So we have a, we, we, we have a, 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 a tension here between what we see in the story that we're enjoying and, and, and what we know through Revelation. And I, I, I think the way to, as you read these stories, the way to, or a way to think about it is to consider whether what these two narratives are doing, that is the detective narrative and the gospel narrative are doing, is they're both offering reconstruction projects. They're both reconstructing things. It's completely looking back in the past, not looking forward. That what the detective does is he reconstructs an historical event, usually a, a, a murder, and then he delivers what? A revelation, that is who, basically who done it. Okay, so he reconstructs the event, and then he, he delivers the re revelation. That's what restores order, or kind, or as best he can. If we believe the gospel, what we're doing every day is we're reconstructing another historical event, another murder. But unlike the detective, we are the recipient of the revelation. In other words... Instead of answering the question, who done it, the question we get the answer is, what was done? That is, what was done on the cross. So we've got two reconstruction projects, and we do this all the time. We do this in, in, in communion, right? A perpetual memory of that, his precious death and sacrifice. That is, by definition, a reconstruction of, 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 that, of that murder. That's exactly what's going on. And in fact, when we think about it, when we look at the whole scripture, Old Testament and New, obviously the bookends are what? Creation and revelation, or creation and final disposition. But within those two bookends, there's a huge parenthetical of murder. Enormous parenthetical of murder. Because when you think about it, the opening parenthesis... It's what? It's Cain and Abel. And the closing parenthesis is the crucifixion. So absolutely, that you have the creation and the revelation, but within those two events, 
And within those two concepts, we have this huge parenthetical, this murder, just over and over and over again. So, so this is more than just kind of a literary trope or something. This is, this is, this, this is and again, remember in the first class we talked about, well, why do, why do these stories interest us? And the, and the secular conventional answer is, well, crime stories are intriguing because aesthetically we like order, and so it pleases us sort of almost in terms of art, almost, when we see chaos and then the chaos is fixed. Okay, I think that's probably true. That does please us. But the reason why it really grabs us is because of this huge parenthetical of murder that we see throughout the gospel and which ultimately gives its, its, its meaning. And let's take a second to look at the story of Cain and Abel. I mean, that's, you know, it's one of those stories that's so familiar and you say, oh, you're Cain and murder brother and you know, all this kind of stuff, that it doesn't really get thought through for a minute. So let me, let's just take a second to actually look at this story. Um, why don't we... Uh, actually, Greg, could you, just, could you just read it? Is this the, the original, original sin? That... No, uh, Genesis 4, 1 through 16. It starts, uh, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Yes, okay. Yeah. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will not be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Keep going. Uh, actually, let's give you a break. Lee, can you finish that up? Cain, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. The Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, thank you. All right, what what a wonderful passage, and we could probably you could probably do a whole class just on this. But from the get go, things are going to go bad with Cain because what does Eve what does Eve proclaim? She says, "I have gotten, meaning begotten, a man with the help of the Lord." So Cain is the 
first guy born, the first baby after the expulsion from Eden. In fact, he's really the first baby, period. And and so she she already is claiming, I have begotten a child. And then we have this wonderful phrase that I think captures a lot of what drives detective fiction in verse 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. All right, so what do we what do we see in here? Cain is the first post-Edenic, post-Lapsarian man, the first baby born in, in sin. And what does he do? He kills his brother. That is the defining act of the first guy, right? Um, and... But, but, but why does he actually kill Abel? It's not so much that Abel did something to him. It's that Cain's relationship to God, not his relationship to Abel, but his relationship to God is the one that's boogered up. Okay? Because he is angered because God looks favorably on his brother's offering and not on his. And he takes umbrage at this because even though the family has been expelled or his parents were expelled from, from Eden, the memory of their, of their supposed or near equality with God, their divine being made in the divine image, is still fresh. So Cain is saying, wait a minute, why is God dissing me? I need to be at least considered as much a creator as he, but of course he can't be because he's, he's a creature, so he can't create. But if he can't create, what is something he can do that is a divine attribute? He can't create, but he can destroy, just like God can destroy. Okay, So he doesn't have the chance to create, but he can destroy. That's the problem. It's not just that Cain sheds blood, which we all now accept as a ethical, legal, moral, and 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 religious problem, but that he seeks to uh, have take a divine act. Okay, that's the core. That's the core problem. And so, murder, for that reason, is the the original, original sin. It's the first sin because because it assaults. The, the whole community. It is, murder assaults everybody. And that's why I quoted W.H. Auden in, there, in, your, in your handout. Remember, Auden is an uh, early 20th century uh, uh, poet who um, um, wrote a lot about detective uh, fiction. And, and he wrote about that when he says that murder is negative creation and every murderer is therefore the rebel who claims the right to be omnipotent. And that's what we do in our own lives as creatures. We claim the right. We don't act it out, maybe like Cain did, but we claim the right to be omnipotent of our own power. And we create, but goodness, we can certainly destroy. We may not kill, we may not slay, but we certainly destroy. And then also, I I, I put in there again, we won't take time to read the whole thing, but Auden point out is, is that Murder is unique because it abolishes the party it injures. 
Okay? So in theological terms, in gospel terms, it attacks the body of, of Christ. Other offenses can be rectified by some kind of reparation to the injured party. If your stuff is stolen, it can be returned to you and fines imposed or whatever. If there's some kind of insult to the person, at least in theory, at least in theory, the, the assaulted person can, 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 can accept an apology or forgive the assaulted. But murder is fundamentally different. Murder obliterates. And we see that, we see, we, we see that in, Gen, in Genesis. When, when in, in, in verse 9, when, when, Cain, when Cain says, I do not know, well, he may just be, in it, well, he is in a sense lying, but he doesn't know where Abel is because he has obliterated him from the family. That's why his blood is in the ground. He is de-atomized. He is no longer extant. Okay, so, so if, if that's the case, then... The reason why this is unique and the reason why it fits within the whole gospel reconstruction story is that from the secular point of view, as Auden says, society has to take the place of the victim. Because there is no victim, I mean, he's dead, buried, gone. So from the secular point of view, society takes the place of the victim. So therefore, murder is, that's why murder is an offense against society rather than an offense against an individual. In the same way, murder, because the individual is, is obliterated, then it's, it's in a, there's nobody left but the, whole, but, the, but the whole, so to speak, family of God, the whole Christian community. Okay? And so that's, it becomes an offense against that community. Alright, so I think that's helpful because it, it helps us understand when we read these stories. And I do, and I, and I do recommend this. I mean, don't overread it. I mean, I mean in, in the first place, these stories are entertainments. I mean, they really are. And anybody who writes them, I think, would probably tell us, yeah, it's the, my first goal is to entertain. And secondly, as we talked about before, almost if you, if you go to any bookstore and you go to the crime and mystery section, you pick out a book, almost certainly the, that that author will not consider himself or herself a Christian in any orthodox sense of the term, at least. Um, so don't overread, I think, when we, when we do this. On the other hand, I think it's, it's helpful and interesting when we do read these to keep in mind, why am I being engrossed? And we're being engrossed not because we're just in the hands of a proficient uh, storyteller, but we're also engrossed because of the story, the story itself. All right, so let's let's look at this kind of original original sin notion in in, in uh, P. D. James uh, in devices and desires, and a lot of her a lot of her uh, a lot of her novels take you know take place in uh, monasteries and death and holy orders, and she actually has a novel called Original Sin, um, and. Um, like I said, Adam Daglish is uh, uh, on vacation, and his 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 aunt has died, and he's trying to deal with her estate. And he has to, for unrelated uh, actually uh, poetry reasons, uh, delivering a manuscript, has to go to this to this house. 
and again we won't take time to go through the whole thing but if you you know if you it, this starts at the front page 20 and 21 and he uh he, he goes up to this house it's called a cottage but it's actually a pretty big pretty big house and it's a very old house and it has on it on page 21 and towards the uh, upper upper uh, upper right there there's a plaque right next to the door kind of like we have these little historical plaques and it says in a cottage on this site lived Agnes Poley Protestant martyr burned at Ipswich 15th August 1557 aged 32 years and then it has a, has a, a citation to scripture Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 15 and so Daglish since he was the son of a minister is able to summon up immediately uh, Ecclesiastes 3.15, especially because he, apparently he was something of a truant and his headmaster made him write out verses and this was one of the ones he had to write, uh, was that he had to write out. Um, and Daglish thinks that's an interesting choice of text. And the quote here, which is a different one than you have in their handout, the, the translation there is, that which hath been is now... And that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. A bizarre sounding piece of scripture. And, and the, the, the English Standard Version to me is a little bit uh, easier to follow, which, which says, that which is has already been, that which is to be, has already been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And the 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 substance of that has something to do with the with the with the with the plot, which we don't have time to go into. But I think the 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 concept here and what the what the wisdom teacher is talking about for our purposes is original sin because that's that's this is a description of the of the character of original sin because it 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 is it is present it is present in the characters in the story and is present in us that which is to be already has been in other words there's nothing going forward in the future no new year's resolutions are going to change the condition in which either the characters find themselves or in which we find ourselves and remember how we talked about this is these are two reconstruction projects that the, the the detective is reconstructing a past historical event, and we as gospel believers are reconstructing an event. Both of us, or all of us, are looking completely retrospectively in that in that effort. Okay, why is that? Because what we're dealing with and what the gospel addresses is original sin, that which was done. Uh, uh, by our forebears, that which is exemplified by, by Cain's crime. So it's all literally in the past, even when we deceive ourselves that our present is different, even when we would wish or anticipate or hope that the future is going to be something different. Okay, so the weight of that sin, though, will, will, will crush that um, will crush that hope. And then finally, God seeks what has been driven away, or in, 
in that translation, God requireth that which is past. That simply isn't it just a notion of law. That is that that's just judgment. In other words, yes, the sin, original sin, occurred in the past. Yes, we're we are slaves to that sin in the, even though we're in the present. But it doesn't matter because God is just and He seeks what has been driven away. He requireth that which is already passed. He always demands that the law be satisfied. All right, so so this to kind of try to bring this together. All right, so this is why a detective story comes a lot closer to the gospel truth than the than the noir story. The noir story accurately describes the condition in which we find ourselves. Because I remember I said, I remember I said last time, uh, we are all Frank, and we all are Cora in The Postman Always Rings Twice, even though we would never admit that to ourselves. We would never say, I would, I would never do such a thing. I would never conduct my life like that. And that's probably true, but that's not the question. Okay, so... Those stories get the recitation of our condition right, but they but they leave us walled up. There is no, not there's not even a person, much less a God, who can speak, completely silent. Here in this world, this post-Christian world, absolutely God is silent. The Daglishes of the world, just like us, wander around, and we live in a world where all these signs and symbols and names are there from Christendom. But we don't hear God through them, and if we if we do purport to hear God through them, people think we would be nuts, right? If we if we thought a saint inhabited a street a street that was named for a saint because the developer thought it sounded Englishy or something, right? Okay, so with the detective story though, we see a, a different turn because the detective does things that are more like what the gospel message is going to be. It's, it's an externality that purports to provide some kind of relief. And how do we perceive that relief? It's because both as we're reading the story and we're seeing that detective or professional amateur, whatever he is, reconstruct that past event, we're realizing that's exactly what we are called upon to do and what we do liturgically especially in, in, in our church tradition, all the time. We are rebuilding a past event, which makes perfect sense if we believe that original sin is in fact true. Because original sin is holy in the past. We are holy in the past, no matter what we think. And as James quotes from Ecclesiastes 13:5, God requireth, that which is past. Here ended the lesson. <laughs> the bells exactly. <laughs> For whom the bells <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time. But uh, let us go forth in the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God.